Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast, a show for accountants using technology to make their jobs more strategic and impactful. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Joining us today for a special bonus episode of the podcast is Ed Kless, Senior Director at Sage Accountants Solutions, Senior Fellow at the Verisage Institute, and co-host of the popular radio talk show, The Soul of Enterprise, which can be heard live on Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America. Ed, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, guys. So, Ed, you describe yourself as a business iconoclast. What does that mean to you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I forget where I came up with the iconoclast language. At first, I, I had corporate iconoclast. And then I changed it, I think, within the last six months or a year to business iconoclast. And, you know, an iconoclast is a, is a breaker of icons, right? A breaker of the, of the, 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 the things that are sometimes held sacred. And... I like to think of myself as someone who seeks those out in business and tries to to go about creating new ways of thinking. Because uh, I think, unfortunately, for a lot of businesses, there's far too much group think around certain things. It's not really just business. It's it's just about everything. The, the, the status quo disturbs me, and I like to disturb it back. I'm picturing you, Ed, in the temple, uh, you know, just, just storming through and, and throwing down all of the idols yes. onto the ground and smashing them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The 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 idols of the timesheet, ROI, um, <laughs> that those efficiency, uh, Lean Six Sigma, all of those. Those are the those are the things I'm taking out. It's funny that it, it, it describes it that way because in my head, I actually made a note. I was like, I want to ask Ed, like, how you became a nonconformist, right? <laughs> and like, because like, I, I think for me, like, I can look at a very specific thing that happened. It was almost like a George Costanza type moment, right? When George becomes the anti-George. Like, is this something you were just born with? Or did you like some event in your career kind of open your eyes to where you're like, hey, I'm going to start thinking differently about stuff. I'm going to attack the world differently. I, you know, I don't know. There was definitely not a moment that I can think of off the top of my head. Maybe if I if I gave it a little bit more thought, I could. But no, and I don't think I was always this way. I think I think I was I, I was much more of a, of a conformist through, say, high school, even into college to a certain extent. And then, you know, things just started to, to strike me as wrong. I, I guess you know, meet, meeting Ron Baker, um, my my, who's the co-host on the Soul of Enterprise with me, that clearly had a piece of it. But it was even before then. I, my mentor was a guy by the name of Howard Hansen, who um, it was at, at Great Plains, right? The not before it was even Microsoft, long, long time ago. And and he he is still my my greatest business mentor. And he he's really the one who I think influenced me on on thinking about things differently about stuff. So uh, I, there wasn't a moment, but it was more of a, a growth based on people that I had met and, and, and a self-transformation over time. Got it. Is this a, like, how, how has this navigated with your career? Right. Has it, has it affected your career goals? Are you like ever managers are like that Ed's an out of control guy. I can't control him. <laughs> like, 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 how is it, how is it, how is it, how, how is being this nonconformist, like, you know, affected you career wise? You know, okay. So that's a, it's an interesting question because it I, it started at Sage in a very weird way. Like I, uh, for, let's, let me quick back up a second and say I I, I, I owned a, a business that was that was reselling and implementing accounting software for uh, fifteen years or so, and I sold my interest in that business in in December of two thousand and one, 
And then for about 18 months, I did some various other projects. Uh, I did some work for Microsoft because they had acquired Great Plains and I was mostly a Great Plains partner at the time. So I, I did some consulting work from them. Then I did con some consulting work uh, for Sage. And then I was hired, <laughs> this is ironically, by Taylor McDonald, right? Who is now at in Sage Intact, of course, right? But I was hired by him. In fact, I am at Sage 15 years and nine days. Because so, it was wow! Congratulations! Yeah, thank you. All right. So yeah. you would think, like, how does a corporate iconoclast or a business iconoclast last for fifteen years? Right. That's your question. And it's because I w worked for Taylor, and Taylor had for a number of years. He just protected me. He was like my rabbi. Right. He would just make sure that the stuff that I was doing um, was was re well, well received by people, but also made people think. And he gave me the, the ability to just go do that. And he, he encouraged me to, to think in that capacity. He wanted someone who was disturbing the status quo, just one person. And then he, he was, he got let go a uh, long story behind that, but he, he got let go. And then I think the powers that be who I've you know taken over from, or who took over in Taylor's role and all that, we're just like, well, we don't know about this Ed guy, but the partners and accountants seem to really like him. And we're not sure what would happen if we fired him. So <laughs> got it. <laughs> <laughs> like if he's this crazy and he still works for us, what what would happen if he didn't work for us? Right? <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 it's that fear of uh, not embracing your conformity. Exactly. They'd be like, oh my God, what do you, do? you know, that, that's probably just what's built up in, in my head, but, but really kudos to Taylor for, for allowing me to do that. And, you know, w one of the, the great stories that I've often told about this is, is I have, I have strategy in my title and the reason why I do is because there was a, a year back at back in the day at Sage when it was one of these corporate, you know, hey, we did we, we didn't we didn't make a, a make our, our numbers. So therefore, there's there's only cost of living adjustments across the board. Nobody's getting any any merit pay increases. So I said, oh, you know, fine, Taylor, I understand that. That's how corporations sometimes work. That's the, the, the way things are going to be. And but I did say there's one thing that you can do for me, and that is to add the word and strategy to the end of my title. And he's like, okay, I'm, I can make that happen. I'm like, great. I said, because here's why. Because when you have strategy in your title, it means that you get paid to think and you get paid to tell other people what you think. They don't have to like what you think. They don't have to do what you think. But you get you get to tell them what you think because that's what strategy, but that's what having strategy in your title means. And so he's like, okay, and it, you know that's the kind of relationship that we had always had. Now this is hand to God, true story. Every subsequent boss that I have had at Sage, I have had that exact conversation with. And so when they came in and said, you know, hey, you're reporting to me yet? I said, okay, great. There's one thing that you need to know about me, and that is this strategy in my title and what that means. It's kind of like your 007 license, right? Like you, you got you once you had it, yep. like you just inform the next manager, "Hey, I have this title already. You can't take it away." And this is what I'm going to this is what I'm going to go do. Yep. yep. And they're like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <laughs> so, Ed, you are not only outspoken about your opinions in business, but also politics. And uh, in getting to know you over the last few years, I've had the privilege of uh, friending you mm -hmm. on Facebook. And I want to thank you for diversifying my Facebook <laughs> feed. 
uh, you know, I, 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 I come from somewhat of a liberal bubble, uh, although, and I have conservative family, but I, I'm kind of only used to hearing those two points of view. And uh, you, as, as a libertarian, provide uh, a different uh, point of view that I very much appreciate. And um, I, I found out that uh, in doing some research for this, that you in 2010 and 2012 ran for the Texas State Senate as a libertarian. And in 2013, you sought the Libertarian Party of Texas nomination for lieutenant governor. So I wanted to ask, um, what was there anything in particular that inspired you to become a libertarian and run for political office? You know, it was it was also not there was no, you know, road to road to Damascus moment for me on that either. That was really more of a, a, a transformation over time. Um, yes, I did run run for both Texas State Senate and very short lived, by the way, for lieutenant governor. I, I dip my toe in the water and then quickly got out of that for a number of different reasons. But yeah. did you have yard signs? Did you get to that point? Uh, for, 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 for state, state Senate? Yes. And still do. I still have them. I was smart enough to, to create the yard signs without a year on them. Right. So I can, I can, <laughs> oh, good. can reuse them in the future. Yeah. <laughs> so if I ever decide to run again, but, um, I, and it, that was a real joy to be able to do that to first of all, be able to represent the Libertarian Party, especially in Texas was fun, but it was, but it was also great to go to these, they don't do debates. They do what are called candidate forums. Right. And to, for me to go and and talk with all of these these politicians who are genuinely seeking the office, because, you know, one of the great things about being a libertarian is like you have zero chance of winning. Right. And I, I have like zero desire to actually serve in the Texas Senate. <laughs> so, I mean, can you imagine how awful that must be? What a what a lousy job. Right. So it would just be be horrible to. to to sit there for days on end debating whether or not so-and-so should be the ice cream parlor of Texas or whatever, right? So I, it, because of that, I was able to say stuff and get people to think. So it's exactly what I do in business, which is to try to get people to think about things differently. A lot of, a lot of the conversations that I had during these candidate forums went something like this. They would ask a question about, I don't know, well, what, what are we going to do about the water supply, right? What is, what, and I said, I object to the premise of your question, right? Because the, the, the premise of your question implies that government needs to do something. And I don't think that the government is a very good solution in this particular case, right? And that it would be better. Here's what we'll do. Let's let the price system determine the price of water. And if there's a need for water, if the price of water starts going up, you know what will happen? Somebody will say, you know, I, I, should, I should build a, a, a lake. I should build a reservoir and because I'm going to make a lot of money doing it. That's a great point that you bring up, Ed, which is that uh, we assume, I think, that government, if there's a problem, that government should do something. It's just a given, right? But you're saying, actually, maybe government shouldn't do something. Maybe it doesn't always have to yeah. be the solution. yeah. You know, don't do and probably most of the time. Yeah, I'm well, don't, you know, don't don't just do something. Stand there. That's the mantra of the of the of the, of the libertarian <laughs> government. Right. And 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 it's not because, you know, and, I, and you might have seen this as a post, I think, that was earlier this week, maybe in the last week. I said, I hope Donald, the, the, you know, the head of the EPA, this guy Pruitt is getting ousted for whatever reason. And, you know, the big thing is, is did he or didn't he get involved in this controversy and the Democrats now scream at the Republicans and back and forth. And, you know, my point was and I think this is what you're getting 
out on my Facebook posts is like, I hope Donald Trump takes the opportunity to get rid of the EPA. <laughs> right. <laughs> and people are like, get rid of the EPA. Why would you do that? Like, well, because the EPA does a lousy job at what it's supposed to do. That's why. Right. I mean, remember the thing in Utah, was it where they they opened up this uh, this cavern that had that and flooded, you know, put sulfur and sulfur into the into the the water supply. Right. Who said who says that government policy is any better? And I think that's what people mistake that, like, why should we Michael Munger, who's been on on my show, has a great way of describing this. He says um, governments are a lot like unicorns. Right. And people say, well, unicorns, what do you mean? It's like, well, imagine I had a a transit system that is run on unicorn power, because, as you know, unicorns are strong and they can carry a lot of weight. Uh, The great thing about unicorns, too, is that they're you know, they they poop strawberries and their flatulence uh, reduces global warming. And you might say, well, this is a great plan, except for one thing. Unicorns don't exist. And I said, well, of course they exist. If you and I, if you, you and I close our eyes and say, what is a unicorn? You, we are both going to conjure up a white horse with a horn and probably rainbows around it. So, of course, they're real because we can both imagine what they are. He said, but they don't exist in reality. I said, OK, fine. Neither does what you're proposing in terms of a government solution. <laughs> right. You we, we idealize what we think government should be able to do. But it's not real. It, it, it can't do the things we ascribe it to. It can't it can't poop, you know, strawberry flavored ice cream and and its flatulence get rid of CO2. So I, I think taking you away from a unicorn for a second and like making this more more real. Right. Because I, I think uh, there's a good example that's very teachable mm-hmm. that you explain really well. And I think that's your opinion on. So when the hurricanes yeah. happened and people were uh uh, raising the prices of bottled yep. water. And I love the, like the lesson that, cause I think it, it, you, you, you cover economics, you cover government policy, all in this one thing about the bottles yep. of water. So for those, yeah. And then the price gouging, that's what I was looking for. So I'd love for you to explain your position on that. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's a great tie in David to the, to the unicorn story is like, it, it would be great if, if government could control prices in such a way that it would not affect affect negatively what it actually wants to affect the other way. So let's let's take uh, water is one thing, but let, let's take maybe a, a, a slightly easier example for people to understand. And that would be the price of hotel rooms uh, that are just outside the hurricane cone of destruction. Right. So that when people are fleeing and on the road there and they're pulling into a a, 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 a motel Right. Why shouldn't the, the I, I believe that the, that the the people who are running that motel should increase their price as much as they can, because say I have, you know, my, my wife and, and kids are with me and, you know, we might be here for a while. So what I'll do is if you have to if you if you if you are coerced by government fiat to keep the price of your room at at, at fifty nine dollars, let's say, or one hundred and fifty nine dollars. And and so I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to be here a while. I'm going to give me two rooms because I'll, you know, that way we can spread out a little bit. My wife and I can still have a separate room. My kids can have a separate room. That's great. Well, that means that someone coming behind me with say an elderly mother or whatever is not going to get that room. So therefore I think that it would be better 
just from a from a human human standpoint, if prices were able to fluctuate with that demand for the marketplace, and they yep they end up charging me say four hundred dollars a room or three hundred seventy five, and I'm like ah, I'm just going to take the one room with the double beds, and my wife and I and the kids will be in it, and that's great. So now there's another room that is potentially available to someone else coming after me. And you say, well, what about poor people? Well, okay, but th- th- this is, th- th- this, this rolls, it's, it's, it's not trickle down. I hate that term, but, but this, uh, this uh, means that, okay, fine, but that will still mean that there are rooms at some point closer to the point of impact of the hurricane at a cheaper price for the people who can't afford the 375 a night. The model, right, this is where it gets tricky for people is like, how could it possibly be better, even if you Mm -hmm. don't have a lot of money, uh, if there is price gouging, but it actually causes more efficient allocation of resources. Correct. Yep. In the end. And you kind of have to do the math to get to that point, unfortunately. But I think the the example of, of uh, you know, the hotel room or bottled water is it like, th- or, or actually a great, a great example is surge pricing mm-hmm. uh, for Uber and Lyft, right? Like uh, people hate the surge pricing, but they put up with it. Well, my example, when I tell people why surge pricing is good, I say, imagine that your wife is about to give birth and you need to get to the hospital, but your car isn't working. So you go on Uber. Well, even in a rainstorm in New York City, you can get an Uber thanks to surge pricing where you can't get a taxi, right? So you're going to pay $100 to get to the hospital or more, but you'd be happy to pay that, right? Um, And if it wasn't for that, then the people who really, really need it desperately wouldn't be able to get it. I have a friend who's alive because of that. Like he had a heart attack on the side of a road and his wife had the prescience to call Uber and not an ambulance. Wow. Yeah, I imagine it would come faster in a lot of places. So so in theory, everybody listening to this is, uh, or most people listening to this are probably bookkeepers, accountants, uh, maybe they have their own firms of, of some type, maybe there's some sort of advisory type roles. So like thinking about like for surge pricing and demand-based pricing. So if I have an accounting firm, if I use some sort of demand-based pricing, that would help me it would help me alleviate my load when it gets to those tax deadlines because people would probably file a little bit earlier knowing they were going to pay a ton more to come to my office in that last day. Absolutely. I mean, now you're crazy to not have surge-based pricing around tax season, right? I mean, that, that that's completely insane to me to not have that. And I feel like, Ed, well, what's your experience? Most firms don't have it, right? I've, ne- I've rarely talked to a firm where they change their price uh, as maybe they have, you know, a, a PETA client price. Did you have it, Blake? But, um, well, we had, I don't even think we had it at HPC. Um, there was some, so we did have surge pricing when it came to like 1099s or whatnot. Like if you didn't get us your information by this date, we would double the price and that really worked. But we hadn't actually done it for the entire firm. And I mean, it, it could be very reasonable, right? If you get it to us by this date, it's this price, this date, this price, this date, this price. Um, I feel like most of the problems in accounting firms around busy season are because they aren't pricing properly. I would totally agree with that. I mean, it's 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 incredible to me. I mean, because let's face it, if it, if you wanted to, you can delay probably the majority of tax returns by just saying, "Hey, if you want the cheapest price, we put you on extension." Yeah, no problem. And and your 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 taxes are not going to be filed until what is it, October fifteenth? Is that the second or is it September? I always forget because I know there's one that's corporate and one of them is is personal, right? So 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 yeah. Yeah. So the cheapest price is we just throw you on an extension. Done. Next. And you and we're not going to do your taxes during this, you know, this crazy period between January and April 15th. And, I, and then I think the whole tax season thing goes completely away. 
Yeah, or or you're at least not compressing it all in three months, and you're spreading mm-hmm. it out over nine months, right? And by then you've got another cycle. So really, you can you can even out this workload just by. I mean, you don't even have to do crazy things like, well, crazy to some people, like ditch your timesheets. <laughs> you know, you just have to actually price appropriately. Yes, but 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 well, and yeah, yes, that's true. I, I I would say just in defense of getting rid of timesheets because you know that's that's uh, I'm a, a big believer in doing that. Um, the problem is is that in keeping your timesheets, you you will you will then think that all of the hours have have equal value, and they don't. I'm just wondering, uh, you know, I keep trying to th- figure this out in my head. Like, what is the barrier? What is the, what is the, maybe you have this answer, Ed. What is the one thing that, uh, that causes accountants to be unable to drop the timesheets? The illusion of control. So meaning that I see the timesheets coming in and I feel like, oh, now I can see what people are working on. Yep. It's the, it's the, it's the illusion of control. It's not real control because <laughs> you don't have it. <laughs> it's the, it's the, it's the illusion. Well, it, it really, and it's a self-imposed delusion, uh, in my opinion, because I spent one year as a manager in a large public accounting firm and, uh, I had to review my staff's timesheets and I was kind of amazed at how every month they would come in on budget for a client where, uh, if if they were actually giving me their real hours, then they would have been there would have been much more yep. variation from month to month. <laughs> this was for our monthly outsourced accounting clients, and then uh, actually I had one one senior accountant straight up tell me that she had a secret spreadsheet that she kept <laughs> with her real hours, and then her. Um, she didn't report to me, and I think she felt comfortable that I wouldn't report her. I mean, what did, what's anyone do about it, right? But she, yeah, she had a she had a secret uh, time budget, and so she knew that she had you know so many hours every every week that she had to hit for all these clients, and so she would she would portion them out. I know. Well, look, this is not surprising. You guys probably have seen me do this. I I, I call it the nuclear option. And and that is when I ha- when I'm standing before a group of a pro- professionals, whether they're accountants, lawyers, doesn't matter. And I have say, say a- anyone who's ever filled out a timesheet, raise your hand. And of course, every hand goes up because that's it's pre- presupposed. And then I say, and how many of you have ever not put down exactly what happened on the timesheet? Right. Keep your hands up. And nobody puts their hands down. And, and because, it, by the way, it's also they, say, they sometimes lower it, too. So they actually work eight, but they put six. Right. So it's not that people are padding it to go over right, right. over all the time. It's they, they're actually doing it under. My guess is, is that in the long run, it's actually under more than anything. Right. And the reason is because you don't want your boss to think you're an idiot. Right. So you're like, OK, well, I, 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 yep. I know it took me eight hours, but I'm only going to put six because otherwise I'm going to get reamed for it. Right. So they lie up and down. So here's mm-hmm. the thing. Every, mm-hmm. and, and look, this happens every single week. Right. Every timesheet is is a lie. There's at least one lie on every timesheet. My guess would be. I I will completely admit that uh, when filling out my timesheet, most of it was crap because I I I don't have the discipline to fill out my timesheet as I go every day, every hour. You know, I'm at the end of the day right. making. I'm like, what did I do today? You know, have you ever had that feeling? Right. Like you go home, and you're like, what did I do today? Mm-hmm. Try filling out a timesheet then. <laughs> And I think it ripples just, I mean, obviously there's a whole podcast people could listen to that's out there. I think Ed has one that's just about how unethical these timesheets are, right? And the death of the uh, the billable hour. Um, but I think it evolves like even past timesheets. I think you look at net promoter scores, 
right? And how those are kind of in theory, but they're always coached. You know, you go to work on your car and at the end, the, the cashier's taking the, your money and then she asks you to, to fill out the net promoter and then you put a seven. She's like, they're going to get in trouble if you don't put an eight or higher. Will you put an eight? I'm like, no, I'm not going to put an eight. <laughs> like it, it, but, but again, like this goes at nonconformist. Like I, unless I've tweeted or recommended it, I actually have done the recommendation. You don't get a nine yeah. or 10. I give everybody a seven. Like, like that's it. But it's kind of that same thing is like the, like people will just, because it's there and it's a form, you'll just fill it out to appease the person yeah. who wants the data. Yeah. You know, I, I, I um, th- there's a part, blog post I did a long time ago on this and, and Ron and I recently just uncovered it and talked about it again. But this, this whole idea of what you can measure, you can manage, right? Or the, it sometimes said the inverse, what you can't measure, you can't manage. Right. Is first of all, Mm -hmm. it's attributed Mm -hmm. to Peter Drucker and he never said it. Never, never, ever said it. Okay, I've I've searched it. You cannot find any attribution. Now, Peter Drucker did say something similar in that he said was what you measure, you will get. That's that's actually far more meaningful. (laughs) So which is what which is the stories that both of you guys just told. Right. So. I'm, I'm, what I'm going to get is I'm going to yep. get the number of hours that were budgeted. That's what I'm going to get. Right. And I'm going to get, I'm going to get what people are encouraged to do on the net promoter score because they know that it's going to be gamed. So th- we're going to get it. So there you go. <laughs> what you measure, you will get, that's what you're going to get because guess what? We are human beings and we sc- we're scams. We're scams. <laughs> <laughs> the worst scam we do is the one we do on ourselves yep we, 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 yeah well we the the you know lie, lying to yourself is the is the is the greatest lie right <laughs> so, and and that's what we're doing as managers of accountants when we when we look at these timesheets and we think they're real we're lying to ourselves well because the before i had the, the the nuclear option one of the things that i would say to people if you were in a in a management or leadership position in a firm i said is if i took your utilization reports away would you still know who your good people are and every person says, everybody says, yeah, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. And because then here's the thing is the timesheet yeah. is then is used as a weapon and it's used as a weapon either for or against them. Right. Yeah. So, cause look, I can, I can, I can say you build too many hours or yeah. too few hours and you're still screwed. Yeah. It's like the, uh, it's like the annual performance review. Thank God I only had to do one of those. Corporate, corporate, that's, that is kabuki theater. Yeah, that's what but, I like to call it. <laughs> well, Ed, I, I, I would love to talk about this all day with you. And I, I hope that, uh, I hope to run into you again uh, at, a, at a conference soon. For our listeners uh, who are interested in learning more about your philosophy, what you're up to, the soul of enterprise, what's, what's the best place for them to track you down online? I would love for them to visit the soul of enterprise.com and give a listen to one or more of our radio shows out there. But just if you want to connect with me via Twitter, it's just at Ed Kless, E-D-K-L-E-S-S and Sam, I'm the only Ed Kless in the world. Yes, I do look at that every so often. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I cannot recommend their podcast. It's it's amazing. <laughs> you, you mean you cannot recommend it enough? Freudian slip. <laughs> <laughs> enough. Yes, sorry. <laughs> oh, and and I just found this out. I didn't realize this, but we can listen to the Soul of Enterprise live on Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America, right? 
Yes, you can. And it was just the soul of enterprise.com slash live at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern. Um, yes, you can listen to it live. Uh, David, where can people get in touch with you? Easiest way is on Twitter, just at David Leary. And um, obviously, this is a bonus episode, but usually we're talking about what's going on in the accounting world and cloud accounting technology. So if you see a story, you think Blake and I should discuss it, shoot it over. And you can connect with me at Blake T. Oliver. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Ed, thank you so much for your time. David, I'll see you next week. All right. Bye, everybody. I'd love for you guys just to talk about your little musical backgrounds. Cause I think Ed, you, you, you've, I've seen you play a, a grand piano at a bar and sing. And yeah, so as I you know, know Blake yeah. has a big, he is very musical uh, background. So I, I, yeah, I would love to understand Blake said he thinks he saw you sing in a, a session you gave. So I, I have a minor in musical theater, which explains a lot. Um, and my, the other concentrations that I had were in business administration and information systems, but ask me which one I use on a more regular basis. And it's clearly the musical theater, uh, just how to get up in front of an audience, how, how to pause, how, how to, how to walk with a purpose instead of just, you know, walking back and forth on stage, pacing, making everybody seasick, uh, especially if you're on a camera. Um, you know, so just some of those things have been so influential in my career. So that's that's the background for it. I, and I view everything as a, as a performance. You know, I, I've got a reputation for, especially in the spring and summer, for wearing a seersucker suit, and it's a costume, right? And it, it, that's what's my my LinkedIn picture. My all everything is is I have that seersucker jacket on anyway. Uh, so it's I view everything as a performance. And there's just been a couple of times when the spirit has moved me, so to speak. And if I think of something and it's connected in my mind and I'm like, Oh, that reminds me of a song. <laughs> so there, so that's, that, that's, the, that's the experience behind it. So before we go, I've got one more question for you. Uh, really it's two. What is your favorite musical and what is your least favorite musical? All right. So this is really interesting. Um, I'm, I, my st still favorite all-time musical by a tiny little smidge is West Side Story. And I, and I have for a couple of different reasons. One, I think it was completely transformative in its day, introducing the concept of, of, of jazz to into the Broadway theater. Uh, the, the, the whole notion of, of uh, a, a, a real st a story that was advanced by the music, not just, added to you actually the plot advances in the story of the music and you know the genius of of leonard bernstein and and stephen stephen sondheim uh but i will say that a very close second is now hamilton because it's done the same thing i have i've yet to see that of course but um maybe when well you know they they seem to be implementing surge pricing quite well <laughs> oh yes yes they yes they are they're doing a great job yeah. of it. Um, in fact, I just had the opportunity to see it on Broadway last week on my vacation with with my wife and kids, and we we got tickets in the sixth row. Long story, and it it's it's just it's absolutely amazing. It's it, it, and it was the best non original cast production on Broadway I've ever seen. And for those of you who are into theater, might understand that a, an original cast is usually so much better, um, mostly because they've usually worked it for two or three years before they've gotten to Broadway. So it's, it's down, but, and then when new cast members take, take over, they're, they're only doing it with four to six weeks of rehearsal 
afterwards, right? So it, they, they're never quite as good because they don't have it as as nailed. And a lot of times they they change the music to to fit the voices of the original star. Um, but the, and and that what that does is it speaks to the strength of the show. It's just it's so it's so unbelievably good. So as far as my least favorite one, I would have to think on that. I I am moved by a lot of music, so it, you can be a, it can be a really crappy musical, um, and I'll try to find something that I like. Perfect. All right, we'll let you go on that one. Thanks again, Ed.